Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art, and welcome to part two of The Burglar and the Blizzard, a story by Alice Miller. Before we get to part two of the story, I do have a little bit of uh, mail to address. I had another email from a listener who enjoyed the Polar Express episode. So, uh, Weston, thank you for reaching out to me. He shared a memory that, like Chris Van Alsberg, who wrote the Polar Express, that he also grew up in Michigan and attended nearly every home Michigan State football game as he was growing up before eventually spending his undergraduate studies there. The Polar Express, he says, was my favorite book as a child. It's the first one I remember checking out from my elementary school library and seeing the illustrations is one of my earliest memories. I never knew the relationship between this beloved book and my alma mater and knowing that one inspired the other. So hearing that on your show was incredibly special. I'll hold that piece of trivia close to my heart. Thank you for your show and for spreading Christmas joy all year. Well, Wes, thank you for that. Uh, Very kind words. And I shared your email with Natalie and we're just both really excited that we're able to, we were able to connect with people and bring to mind just the wonderful memories they've had around this story. Other than that, the the mailbag has been a bit empty of late, but I want to thank those of you who are who have written in and continue to to download the episodes during during this month. And so again, this month we are looking at the uh, the Home Alone Reading Challenge, where we are reading a book or story of a character that has to overcome challenges on their own. And I've chosen to read The Burglar and the Blizzard by Alice Miller. Now where we left off on this story, so our our main character Jeffrey came home uh, and discovered somebody was robbing his house. And what followed was an amusing kind of battle of wits where Jeffrey tries to figure out what he's going to do with this burglar. The burglar is telling him that, oh, by the way, I left my sister at home alone in a blizzard. Could you go and check on her? Jeffrey's not sure he believes this story. So uh, we're going to pick up with chapters three and four today. Hopefully next week, we'll finish out with chapters five through seven. As always, I invite you to make yourself comfortable, grab your cup of Christmas tea, and I'll read you The Burglar and the Blizzard, part two, by Alice Miller. Chapter 3 Jeffrey was born with a love of adventure, and his dislike to his present expedition arose not from fear, but from a consciousness that if he did run into a den of thieves, he would think himself such an ass to have come. Indeed, there seemed a fair chance that he might think this even if nothing worse happened than that the hut proved empty, for he would have had a long walk for nothing better than to provide McVeigh with an opportunity to escape. He did not see exactly how McVeigh could get out, but he was aware that few people would think it wise to leave a burglar locked in a closet in an empty house with some hours of leisure at his disposal. The first glimmering of dawn was visible as he stepped off the piazza. The wind was blowing fiercely and the snow was falling. He had not gone a hundred yards before he knew that the expedition was to be more difficult than he had imagined. To make headway against the wind was a constant struggle and he seemed to slip back in the snow at every step. Still, the natural obstinacy of his nature was aroused, 
and as his attention was more and more engaged with the endeavor to make his way, he had less time to think of the probable futility of his proceeding. Long before he sighted the hut, he was wet to the waist, not only because he had been in half a dozen drifts, but because the snow had penetrated every crevice of his clothing. The hut was a forlorn little spot upon the landscape, a patch of gray on the stretch of forest and snow. A shudder blowing in the wind gave an impression of desertion, for how could anyone, however wretched, sit idle under that recurrent bang? Drawing his revolver, Jeffrey approached the door. He had no intention of giving a possible enemy an opportunity to prepare himself, and so did not knock, but putting his shoulder against the door, shoved mightily. The hinges broke from the rotten wood at once and he stumbled in. The pale light of the early winter morning showed a depressing interior, for the window was not the only opening. There was a great gap in the roof where, earlier in the night, the chimney had fallen, and now its bricks littered the floor, already well covered with snow. Some attempt must have been made, as McVeigh had boasted, of fixing it up. There were books in the shelves on the walls, and a black iron stove on which the snow now lay fearlessly. As Jeffrey took in the situation, something in a huge chair, which he had taken for a heap of rugs, stirred and moved, and finally rose, betraying itself to be a woman. Jeffrey had been prepared to find a den of thieves, or nothing at all, or even a girl, as McVeigh had said. He told himself he would be surprised at nothing, yet found himself astounded, overwhelmed, at the sight of a beautiful face. The girl must have been beautiful so to triumph over her surroundings, for all sorts of strange garments were huddled about her, and over all a silk coverlet, originally tied like a shawl under her chin, had slipped sideways and fell like a hussar's jacket from one shoulder. Her hair stood like a dark halo about her little face, making it seem smaller and younger, almost too small for the magnificent eyes that lit it. Geoffrey, tolerably well-versed in feminine attractions, said to himself that he had never seen such blue eyes. And suddenly, while he looked at her and her desperate plight, pity became in him a sort of fury of protection, the awakening of the masculine instinct toward beauty in distress. It was a feeling that the other women he had admired, well-fed, well-clothed, well-cared-for young creatures, had always signally failed to arouse. He had seen it in other men, had seen their hearts wrung because an able-bodied girl must take a trolley car instead of her father's carriage, but he had thought himself hard, perhaps unchivalrous. But now he knew better. Now he knew what it was to feel personally outraged at a woman's discomfort. Good God, he cried, what a night you have had. How wicked, how abominable, how criminal. It has been a dreadful night, said the girl, but it's nobody's fault. Of course, it is somebody's fault, answered Geoffrey. It must be. Do you mean to tell me no one is to blame when I have been sitting all night with my feet on the fender and you? Certainly, she said with an extraordinarily wide, sweet smile. I could wish we might have changed places. I wish to heaven we might, returned Geoffrey, and meant it. Never before had he yearned to bear the sufferings of another. He had often seen that it was advisable, suitable just that he should, but burningly to want to was a new experience. Thank you, said the girl, but I'm afraid there is nothing to be done. Nothing to be done? He dropped on his knees before the black monster of a stove. Do you suppose I'm here to do nothing? You are here, I think, for shelter from the storm. 
It had not occurred to him before that she looked upon him as a chance wanderer. That shows your ignorance of the situation. I am here to rescue you. I left my fireside for no other reason. As I came along, I said at every blast, that poor, poor girl. I set out to bring you to safety. I began to think I was born for no other reason. She smiled rather wearily. Your coming at all is so strange that I could almost believe you. You may thoroughly believe me, more easily perhaps when I tell you I did not particularly want to come. I started out at dawn, very cross and cold, because I did not know what I was going to find. But I thought you said you did know that you were going to rescue a girl. A girl, yes. But what's a mere girl? How many thousand girls have I seen in my life? Is that a thought to turn a man's head? What I did not know was that I was going to find you. The fire will never burn with the chimney strewn on the floor, she said mildly. Well, I've said it, you see, he answered, and you won't forget it. Even if you do change the subject, he turned his attention to the fire. Where is the man worthy of the name to whom the business of fire building is not serious? Presently seeing he needed help, she dropped to her knees beside him and tried to shove a piece of wood into place. In the process, her numbed fingers touched his, and he instantly dropped everything to catch her hand in both of his. Your hands are as cold as ice, he said, holding them tightly, and thanking fate that his bounty had fallen to his lot. And thanking fate that this bounty had fallen to his lot. She withdrew them. You are too conscientious, she said. That is not part of the duty of a rescue party. It is, it is, said Geoffrey violently. It is the merest humanity. Humanity? To me, of course, if you will pin me down. Oh, there is no reason for the rescued to be humane. They ought to be grateful. They are. Gratefuller, then. Is it nothing that I have taken all the trouble to be born and grow up and live just to come here for you? Perhaps I could be gratefuler if there were any prospect of a fire? Oh, curse the fire, said Geoffrey, rising from his knees. Who minds about it? Uh, I mind very much. Well, you mustn't. You must not mind about anything, because it sets up too strong a reaction in me. There's no telling what I might not do under the stress. Come away from this dreadful place. The fires will burn in my house, and that is where we are going. I can't do that, she said, looking very grave. You can't do anything else. I must wait for my brother. He's out somewhere in the storm, and if he comes back and finds me gone... Oh, your brother, said Geoffrey. I forgot all about him. He's at my house already. He sent me for you. Oh, said she, sighing with relief, and then adding maliciously, Then my plight was not revealed to you in a vision? The vision is with me now. She had, to perfection, the art of allowing her mind to drift away when she thought it advisable. And so you took poor Billy in, she said. Geoffrey coughed. <clears throat> uh, well, <clears throat> in a... In a sense, he answered. She rose. We'll go at once, she said. Is it far? Not very, but it is going to be hard work. He felt more practical. His delight had slipped from him at the realization of her relationship to McVeigh. For a moment he felt depressed. Then, as he saw her struggling to undo the knot that held the comforter about her, he forgot everything but the pleasure of doing her a service. And in the midst of this joy, the coverlet slid to the ground and revealed her clad from head to foot in his sister's sables. There was a pause. What are you looking at? she asked. That is a nice warm coat you have on. Isn't it? 
She rubbed her cheek against the high collar with a tenderness trying to any masculine onlooker. It saved my life. It was on the tip of Jeffrey's tongue to ask if he was not entitled to a similar claim on her consideration, but he suppressed it. Was it possible that she did not know that the garments she wore were stolen? Could any sane woman really believe that sable coats fell naturally to the lot of night watchmen? Her manner was candor itself, but how should it not be? What more inevitable than that she should make an effort to deceive a casual stranger? She had the most evident motives for behaving exactly as she did. Just so, however, he had reasoned about McVeigh, and yet McVeigh had been sincere. There had been a girl in distress exactly as he had said. It was contrary to all reason, but it was true. Might not the girl be true too? Was it not possible, he asked himself, and answered that it was more than possible. It was the truth. He chose to believe in her, and turned his anger against McVeigh, who could drag her through such a mire. He felt the tragedy of a high-minded woman tricked out in stolen finery, and remembered with a pang that he himself was hurrying on the moment of disillusion. I wonder, she said, if I could take some things with me? Is it possible for me to carry a bag? Yes, but not for me. It would be only this. She held up a small Russian leather affair legibly marked with Mrs. Ein's initials. I will take it, said Geoffrey. His faith was sorely tried. She moved about collecting things and packing and presently remarked, But if Billy is all right, why didn't he come for me himself? Oh, because... Geoffrey hesitated an instant, and her fears interrupted the pause. He's hurt. You are keeping it from me. You are deceiving me. I would scorn to deceive you, said Geoffrey with passion, and looked at her to find some answer to the reverse question which he did not put into words. She did not appear to understand. Then why didn't he come? she asked. He had been out in the storm already. I thought it was my turn. I think he must be stronger than Billy, she cast a reflective glance at his shoulders, and he was ashamed to find himself inordinately flattered. He is really safe at your house? I hope so. I did my best, he returned grimly. She looked at him gravely. You have been very kind to a stranger, she said. And at this point, Geoffrey made the fatal mistake of his dealing with her. It did not occur to him that he was going to shield McVeigh, but he thought a more advantageous time could be found for telling her the truth, in case, of course, she did not know it already. He felt that he himself would be better able to deal a cold blow when she was warm and sheltered. No man, he said to himself, could be disagreeable to a girl who had no one to depend on but himself. So he said, He was not exactly a stranger to me. We were at school together. Oh, another of Billy's friends. I never knew such a person for discovering friends at the most opportune times. He never wants anything but what a friend turns up. Did you find him wandering about, or did he come and demand admittance? Why, neither exactly. I was not in the house at the time. He felt he knew me well enough to walk in. He never told me he had a friend in the neighborhood. We had not met since we were at school. He had not seen you since he was at school, and yet he felt he knew you well enough to walk in on you? Yes, he just walked in, and then I would not let him go. <laughs> Men are so queer, she exclaimed with a little laugh that had a spice of admiration in it, under which Geoffrey writhed. He was sailing under such false colors as her brother's benefactor. We ought to be starting, he said. She looked round the room. I hate to leave all these nice things, she said. Billy is so fond of them. 
there is some wine that someone gave him that he says is really priceless. Leave it, said George shortly. One would think you were a teetotaler from that tone. I wonder if I could not take one bottle as a surprise to Billy. He would like to contribute something to your hospitality, I am sure. Besides, if I leave it, it may be stolen. Yes, it may be stolen, he looked down into her face. Then, I ask you as a favor to leave it behind. Nothing could have been more charming than her manner of yielding, sweet and quick like a caress. It made him feel how pitiful, sordid it all was. They started immediately, started with a certain gaiety. Geoffrey chose to remember only that they were together through a hard adventure, and that it was his part to smooth her way. The bond of difficulties to overcome united them. They felt the intimacy of a single absorbing interest. They had nothing to think of but accomplishing their task, of that and of each other. As far as they could see were snow and black trunks of trees. They scarcely remembered that anyone but themselves existed. Now justly he could admire something besides her beauty. Her courage warmed his heart. Yet with all her spirit she made no attempt to assert her independence. She turned to him at every point. He guided her past the scenes of his own disasters and saved her from the mistakes he had already made. But only for a little while did they move forward in this delightful exhilaration. Before they had gone far, she grew silent, and when she did answer him, spoke less spontaneously. She asked for neither help nor encouragement, but plunged along as steadily as she was able. Her skirts, however, wet and heavy, hampered her desperately, and the exertion of walking through the thick snow began to tell. Geoffrey made her stop every now and then for a breathing spell, but at length she stopped of herself. Have we done half yet? she asked. Just about, he answered, stretching truth in order to encourage her. But he saw at once that he had failed, that she had had a hope that they were nearer the, their destination, that she began to doubt her own powers. Presently she moved forward again in silence. He began to be alarmed lest they should never reach his house yet took comfort in the thought, as he looked at her, that whatever strength she had, she would use to the end. No hysterical despair would exhaust her beforehand. She would not fail through lack of determination. Whether or not she were the confederate of a thief, she was a brave woman, yes, and a beautiful one, he thought, looking down upon her in the glare of the snow. Presently, he held out his hand in silence, and she as silently took it. This was to Geoffrey the explanation of his whole life. This was what men were made for. Once as they stood resting, the wind, which fortunately had been at their backs the entire trip, hurled her against him, where she remained an instant, too weak to move. It was he who set her gently on her feet again. The latter part of the journey she made almost wholly by his help, and when they stood before the piazza, she could not have managed the little step had he not virtually lifted her up. He took her directly to the library and laid her on the sofa. The fire, owing to the absence of McVeigh, had gone out. It took Geoffrey some time with his benumbed hands to build a blaze. When he turned toward her again, she was sleeping like a child. The sight was too much for his own weariness, and reflecting that McVeigh was either gone or still safe, he stretched himself on the hearth rug and was soon asleep also. The Burglar in the Blizzard by Alice Miller, Chapter 4 It was after two o'clock in the afternoon when he awoke. He must have slept three hours. He looked at the sofa and saw the girl still sleeping peacefully. 
He almost wished that she would never awake to all the dreadful surprises that the house held for her. Her eyelashes curved long and dark on her cheek. Geoffrey turned away quickly. He had awakened with the sudden disagreeable conviction that people have been known to smother to death in closets. He stole quietly from the library and ran upstairs with not a little anxiety. Indeed, so great was his dread that he would have been really relieved to see the closet door standing open as an immediate proof that it did not hide a corpse. It was, however, locked as he had left it. But as he hastened to undo it, a voice from within reassured him. He let McVeigh out of the closet. Well, where have you been all this time? You may be thankful I'm back at all. It did not look like it at one time. Where is Cecilia? Downstairs, asleep. McVeigh gave a, a little giggle. Ha <laughs> ha, he said. I bet you have had the devil of a time. I bet you wished once or twice that you had let me be the one to go. Yeah, it wasn't child's play. Child's play? I rather think not. These things are all well enough among men, but women, he waved his hand, so sensitive, so cloistered. Your sister behaved nobly, said Geoffrey, severely. Bound to, Holland, bound to. Still, it must have been a shock. It was a hard trip for any woman. McVeigh looked up. Oh, he said. I wasn't speaking of the trip. I meant about me. What did she say? Uh, she did not say anything. She went to sleep. She did not say anything when you told her I was booked for the penitentiary? Oh, said Geoffrey, and there was a slight pause. Then he added, Why should I tell her what she must know? I tell you, she knows nothing about my profession. Your profession? Hasn't a notion of it. What, with my sister's coat on her back and the Eins's bag in her hand? No, McVeigh drew a step nearer. You see, I told her that I had found a second-hand store where I could get things for nothing. He chuckled, and Geoffrey withdrew with a look of repulsion that evidently disappointed the other. That was a good idea, wasn't it? He asked with a faint appeal in his voice. She thought it was likely, anyhow. She must be very gullible, said Geoffrey, brutally. Or else, said McVeigh, with a conscious smile, I must be a pretty good dissembler. At this acute instance of fatuity, Geoffrey, if he had followed his impulse, would have flung McVeigh back in the closet and locked the door. Instead, he said, Come downstairs. I want to look up something to eat. Thank you, said the burglar. It would be a good idea. You need not thank me, said Geoffrey. I don't take you with me for the pleasure of your company, but because I don't dare let you out of my sight. McVeigh, as was his habit when anything unpleasant was said, chose to ignore this speech. You know, he said, as they went downstairs, I suppose that most men shut up in a closet for all those hours would take it as a hardship, but to me, it was a positive rest. I really, in a way, enjoyed it. It is one of my theories that everyone ought to have resources within. Now, I dare say, you were quite anxious about me. I never thought of you at all, said Geoffrey. After I got in, I went to sleep for three hours. McVeigh looked at him once or twice in surprise. Then he said with dignity, Asleep? Well, really, Holland, I don't think that was very considerate. Don't talk so loud, said Geoffrey. You'll wake your sister. Geoffrey had always been in the habit of going on shooting trips at short notice, and so it was his rule to keep a supply of canned eatables in the house to be ready whenever the whim took him. On these he now depended, and was not a little annoyed to find the kitchen store room where they were kept securely locked. This difficulty, however, McVeigh made light of. He asked for his tools and on being given them set to work on the door. 
Have you ever noticed, he said, the heavy-handed way in which some men use tools? Look at my touch, so light yet so accurate. I take no credit to myself. I was born so. It's a very fortunate thing to be naturally dexterous. It would have been more fortunate for you if you had been a little less so. Oh, I don't know about that, Holland. I might have starved to death years ago. I wish to God you had, said Geoffrey. McVeigh shook his head faintly in deprecation of such violence, but otherwise preferred to pass the remark by. And they soon set to work heating soup and smoked beef. When all was ready and spread in the dining room, this was McVeigh's suggestion, he said food was unappetizing unless it were nicely served. Geoffrey said, Go and see if your sister is awake, and if she is, he added firmly, I'll give you a few minutes alone with her so that you can explain the situation fully. McVeigh nodded and slipped into the library. Geoffrey shut the door behind him and sat down on a bench in the hall from which he could command both doors. If he entertained the doubts of her innocence, which he continually told himself no sane man could help entertaining, he found himself strangely nervous. He felt as if he were waiting outside an operating room. He thought of her as he had seen her asleep, of the curve of her eyelashes on her cheek, of her raising those lashes, awaking to be met with McVeigh's revelations. Even if she were guilty, Geoffrey found it in his heart to pity her, waking to learn that her brother was a prisoner. How unfortunate, too, would be her own position. The guest, if only for a few hours, of a man who was concerned only to lodge her brother in jail. His heart gave a distinct thump when the library door opened and they came out together. His eyes turned to her face at once and found it unperturbed. Didn't she care, or had she always known? McVeigh caught his arm when she had passed them by and whispered glibly, Thought it was better to wait until she had something to eat. Shock on an empty stomach. So bad. So hard to bear. Geoffrey shook his arm free. You infernal coward, he whispered back. Well, I like that, retorted McVeigh. You didn't tell her yourself when you had the chance. Wasn't my affair. I did not tell her because... Oh, I know, McVeigh interrupted with a chuckle. I've been knowing why for the last ten minutes. They followed her into the dining room. It was not a sumptuous repast to which they sat down but Geoffrey asked nothing better. He was sitting opposite to her, a position evidently decreed him by fate from the beginning of time. He could look at her, now and then, in spite of her delicious reluctance, could force her to meet his eyes. When this happened, nothing was ever more apparent than that. For both of them, a momentous event had occurred. She was almost completely silent, and as for him, his responses to the general conversation which McVeigh kept attempting to set up, were so entirely mechanical that he was scarcely aware of them himself. It was she who suddenly remembered that it was Christmas Day. And this is our Christmas dinner, observed McVeigh regretfully. Oh no, returned the girl. This is luncheon. I'll cook you dinner. You'll see. There was a pause. Geoffrey looked at McVeigh. The moment for disillusioning her had manifestly come. Wherever they might next meet, it would not be at his dinner table. A hateful vision of a criminal court rose before him. Miss McVeigh, he said gravely, indifferent to the signals of warning which the other man was directing toward him, we shall not be here at dinner. Your brother will tell you my reasons for wishing to start down the mountain. Now? At once. She colored slowly and deeply, the only evidence of anger. I do not need any other reason than your wish that we should go, she said, rising. I should thank you for having borne with us so long. Upon my word, Holland, it is madness to start as late as this, said McVeigh. It'll be dark in an hour. She turned on her brother quickly. Please say no more about the matter, Billy, she said. We will start at once. 
You won't start if it means certainly freezing to death, he remonstrated. She flashed, she flashed a glance at Geoffrey, who had also risen and was trying to compel the truth from McVeigh by a stern, steady glance. I would, she answered and shut the door behind her. McVeigh sprang up and was about to follow her when Geoffrey stopped him. One moment, he said. You are quite right. It is too late to start tonight. We must stay here until tomorrow. But if we are to spend a night here without your sisters being told, my dear Holland, think of her position if we did tell her. I grant that the information had better be withheld until just as we are starting, but in that case I must. I know what you are going to ask. My word of honor not to escape. I give it. I give it willingly. I'm not going to ask for anything at all, said Geoffrey. I'm going to tell you one or two things, and I advise you to pay attention. We won't have any nonsense at all. Remember, I am armed, and I am a quick man with a gun. There may be some quicker, but not in the east, and it wasn't in the east I got my training. You will always keep in front of me where I can see you plainly, and you will never, under any circumstances, come nearer than six feet to me. If you should ever come nearer than that, or take a sudden step in my direction, I'd shoot you just as sure as I stand here. McVeigh looked distinctly crestfallen. Oh, come on, Holland, he said. Isn't that the least little bit exaggerated? You would not shoot me before my own sister. I would not like to, but there are things I should dislike even more, and having you escape is one of them. The other thought it over. The trouble is, he explained, that I am impulsive. You must have noticed it. I get carried away. You know how I am. I'm not at all sure that I shall remember. I advise you to try for this is the only warning you will get. I cannot believe, Holland, that you would really shoot me in cold blood in the presence of my own sister. You had better behave as if you believed it. I don't like this arrangement, McVeigh broke out peevishly. Suppose for the sake of argument that I did forget, that I put my hand on your shoulder, a very natural gesture. I should shoot instantly. But fancy the shock to Cecilia. Not more of a shock, perhaps, than discovering that you are a thief. And another thing... It may be very gay and amusing to be forever fooling about the subject, but I advise you against it. It does not amuse me. Oh, be honest, Holland, it does. It must amuse you. It is essentially amusing. It won't amuse her or you either when she finds out that you are not only a thief, but that you have been able to find amusement in deceiving her. Again, McVeigh's gaiety seemed momentarily dashed. Very true, he said. I had not thought of that. But then, he added more brightly, who can tell if it will actually fall to my lot to tell her? Things happen so strangely. It may turn out that that is your part. It may, said Geoffrey, but only because I have had to shoot after all. With which he opened the door and they returned to the library. Well, I feel like our plucky hero has gotten himself in a little bit of a pickle. <laughs> McVeigh has managed to convince him to let them spend Christmas night uh, in their house before they start off in the morning. I, I love how as soon as hum, as soon as um, Jeffrey sees Cecilia, he just falls head over heels in love, and he instantly understands what it's meant to be to be a man. You know, I'm here to rescue this beautiful damsel in distress. You know, very. Uh, in some ways, old-fashioned notions, but something tells me that uh, Cecilia has a bit of pluck, that she can handle things on her own. Well, we'll see how the story unfolds next week. So thank you for uh, coming along and enjoying this second part of the story. I'll be back next week, 
And in the meantime, you can check out our show notes for ways to help support the podcast. And as well, I would love to hear from you. If you have a story or a memory you want to share with the audience, email me at cozychristmaspodcast at gmail.com. And so until next time, remember to be kind to each other and to do good. And let us honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.